Well, hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Page 2 Podcast, where we take a deeper dive behind the headlines and beyond Sunday morning sermons to talk about issues of faith, culture, and life. Well, hey there, Greg. It's good to be back for another episode where we're taking kind of a dive into Jesus. What we do you are. think about that? That's right. You we're know? looking at Jesus. You week. know, that's that's kind of the pastor thing to do, right? Yeah. We're going to do a podcast episode on Jesus. And right now, while we're recording this episode, we're in a sermon series called Unexpected Jesus, where we're looking at uh, different aspects of Jesus that we don't uh, typically look at. And I think this is a great time for us to take kind of a, a deeper dive on on some things that um, ask some questions about who Jesus was. And you had a chance to have a really great conversation with somebody that I know you and I both respect. We've actually had him on the podcast before as sort of our phone a friend or phone a smarter than us friend, uh, Dr. Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary. I did. I did. And it was, uh, it was pretty intimidating. Yeah, you know, I bet. He, was, he was gracious enough to come into the studio and answer some questions about the historical Jesus. Yeah. And um, I just kind of teed up a, a few <laughs> questions and let him just sort of wax eloquent. And, you know, from a historical perspective, it was really fascinating. Yeah. I think the thing with Dr. Bach, uh, you know, as we're in this, you know, you know, I know as we're recording it, people yeah. might be listening to this or they may not even attend our church. But as we're in a series called Unexpected Jesus, I think a thing that people often worry about, whether you're a Christian or not, is that they're going to learn something unexpected about Jesus that you're like, oh, I don't. Was that, is that true? You know, and right. I remember as a kid, like there was a whole um, a special uh, on CNN about the Shroud of Turin. I remember when that came out and I, I, I couldn't even explain to you exactly what that is, except that there was this thing they found that somehow caused everyone to question everything that they knew about Jesus. And it made the I, I think it was a piece of cloth that had healing power and everything. Right. And I had wished at that point that I'd had like a Dr. Bach in my life to yeah. be able to kind of consult and, and think things through and. Whenever they show up on TV, these things, it's like they don't even – you don't even know if you're getting the whole story or not. And I, I think we now know that we probably aren't getting the whole story right. on that kind of right. stuff. So I think what I love about the interview that you're about to share uh, mm -hmm. that you pre-recorded before yeah. this is that um, it, it makes me it makes me excited that there are people like Dr. Bach around there, um, people that probably are a, a number of notches smarter than at least me uh, on there, but it makes me feel like, okay, this guy has really good answers to, um, and is really thoughtful, like not just here's the answer, but he's done the research and yeah. the, the homework behind it. I think as we listen... Uh, it'll be important just to know that we're going to dive into a whole bunch of different aspects. Some of them we may follow, others may be you know, a little bit above our heads, but I think there's a part that's just really helpful to know that there are really solid answers to a number of these things. Yeah, I think sometimes when um, like maybe you see these news reports or maybe you uh, read an article or whatever, sometimes it's presented in a um, gotcha yeah, kind, of, yeah. kind of aspect, you know, to where... Um, so Christians or, or the, the Christian community has been pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. Here's the truth, you know, this kind of stuff. And um, and it, what was fascinating and, and really uh, refreshing with Dr. Bach is, one, um, he, he comes at things that seems like from a really um, fair place. Yeah. Um, 
but also he's just not surprised, you know, and you kind of find out that, uh, that some of these arguments that have been lobbied against um, the, the historical Jesus um, are not new. And like every generation, it's, it's essentially the same arguments again and again. And, um, and, and it's, it's comforting to know that there are really, really smart people yeah. that are doing, you know, deep dive research and their deep dive research is solidifying their faith. Yeah. Um, and um, causing them to say, yes, the Gospels um, do give us a, um, a believable um, and accurate view of, of who this person was. Yeah. And this person is worthy of our faith. And, and it's just sort of comforting to know that, you yeah. know, that, that, it's, that, that these are not dummies, you know, that <laughs> these, are, these are smart people. Um, and, uh, and so that's, it was fascinating to have this conversation. Well, let's take a listen to what you guys uh, had with your conversation, and then uh, let's chat about it afterwards. All right, let's do it. So, Dr. Bach, it is a privilege that you would join us here and have a conversation with us about the historical Jesus. And I, um, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I know you and I have talked a couple times before on, on other topics, but um, this is really— um, where people may have heard of you before, mm-hmm. um, have maybe seen you on CNN or seen you, you know, you're kind of a go-to sometimes uh, on issues of historical Jesus. And so uh, we're in a series right now um, that we're calling Unexpected Jesus, and we're looking at um, aspects of Jesus that we might not discuss all the time. And so we just thought it would be great to bring you in to talk about, from your perspective as a scholar, as a historian, um, talk about the historical Jesus. And so... Uh, the first question I just wanted to throw out to you and to see kind of where the conversation goes um, is just at a, at, a, at a historical level, how do we know that Jesus like really existed? Well, um, answer that's actually pretty straightforward. And there's virtually no one who doubts that Jesus historically existed. Um, we have probably the best piece of testimony outside what we have in the biblical materials and the Christian materials. Uh, in fact, I actually ask, uh, I tell my students, if you're on an ordination exam with me, I might ask you this question. That is, <laughs> beyond citing Christian materials, what evidence is there that Jesus existed? And uh, the short answer to that question is, is that uh, a first century Jewish historian, Josephus, mentions mm-hmm. him in a book called The Antiquities, which is a history of Israel starting from the very beginning up to the time of his own life. And in uh, Book 18, Units 63 and 64, in case someone wants to look it up and have devotions. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) uh, um, There is a reference to Jesus who performed unusual works, who was crucified at the behest of the Jewish leadership under Pontius Pilate, uh, and that he was, uh, that his his followers claim that he's still alive today is basically the gist of that citation. Okay. And uh, there is a little bit of um, controversy about the citation because it has obviously been uh, transmitted in a way in which Christian scribes got a hold of it and added to it. Okay. Um, because um, they have Josephus confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus was not a mess, and Josephus was not a messianic. Yeah. Uh, and and other things uh, like that, but. Most scholars think that there's something there that he referred to because later on in Antiquities in uh, Book 20 and Unit 200, there's a reference to James, the brother of the so-called Christ. And if he's not mentioned anywhere, then 
that reference, which seems to be a throwaway, doesn't make any sense. Right. So, um, so Josephus is one major reason. Then we do have references in Tacitus and Suetonius to Roman historians early second century, who refer in one way or another to uh, Crestus in one case and Christ in the other about uh, about. Uh, Jesus and his uh, also being put to death under Pilate. So, mm-hmm. um, so these citations um, give virtually anyone working in classics um, confidence that Jesus himself existed. So that's usually that's not up for grabs. Okay. Well, for our listeners here, that's great. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, for our listeners here, most of whom go to Chase Oaks Church or know of Chase Oaks, that's why they're listening to this. Um, we are getting our information about Jesus from the Gospels, mm-hmm. from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so talk to me. So so you talked sort of outside the Gospels. What are, what are evidence that he existed? Uh, talk to us a little bit about the accounts of the Gospels and how accurate do you think they are? Because I know that you have heard all of the arguments um, yeah. about um, about that. And we're going to, and, and really most of our conversation is going to be around the veracity of the Gospels right. here today. Um, so just talk to us a little bit about how your, your confidence in the gospel accounts. I'm very confident that the uh, gospels give us Jesus, and there are really two ways to argue it. One is to argue for just the thrust of what the gospels are doing, which I think can be shown even by the way ancients passed on uh, their materials from one from event to writing in uh, the orality that was at work in the ancient world. Um, because most stories, at least initially, were not written down. They were passed on orally from right. person to person. And then secondly, of course, uh, we believe that the Spirit of God has overseen uh, this transmission in such a way that its contents are guaranteed. So so if I'm talking to someone who who wrestles with the issue of inspiration, what I may do is to say, well, uh, the disciples hung out with Jesus for about three and a half years. Surely they knew what he basically taught about himself right? and passed that on. Uh, that um, whether he thought he was a prophet or he thought he was the Christ or he thought he was the Son of God, they would have had that sorted out. If you're around someone for three and a half years, then you would know yeah. that kind of a thing. You know what their core emphasis was about what their who they were and what their mission was. And... Uh, uh, and then if you talk about how the material gets got transmitted, that it wasn't just you aren't dealing with the memory of just one person. You're dealing with the memory of several people. Mm-hmm. You aren't just dealing with something that's remembered. And then 20 years down the road, someone sits down and tells you that story. It's actually been told and retold many right. times in between. Mm-hmm. So there's repetition. There's mutual witnesses. It's a corporate memory. It's not an individual memory. And then there it, there was in the ancient world a way to. Uh, pass on that kind of material orally so that it developed a consistency with the way it was presented, even though it was also presented oftentimes with some variation to keep it from being, you know, well, I've heard this before. And so right. um, yeah. and so that process is, is in all likelihood what took place until uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, and I did it in that order on purpose, mm-hmm. um, uh, sat down and wrote, uh, the material with uh, additional sources that they had access to as well, some of which by the time they're writing are also written down and not just uh, a reflection of what they've heard from eyewitnesses. Yeah. 
And Luke 1, verses 1 and 2 actually tell us this. Um, Luke 1 Hmm. speaks about how many have undertaken to write down an account of what took place among us. That's the written sources. Mm -hmm. Even as eyewitnesses and servants of the word passed on to us material. That's the oral part. Right. And so, um, so, you know, even the biblical text at one point tells us how this, how this two track approach to understanding Jesus actually worked. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So, um, it seems to me that about, I don't know if it's every year, it's sometimes it seems like every year, you know, at Christmas or, or Easter or something like that, you can look on newsstands and uh, on some major publication, you'll see a picture of Jesus, or you'll see uh, a promo on TV that's, that a major network is going to do a special on who was the real Jesus. And, um, or maybe every couple of years a book comes out or maybe a movie comes out. The Da Vinci Code is now a few years old, but that was one that kind of um, um, came out. That, and, and it seems like each of those, there are other accounts that were um, maybe circulating at the time or that, that scholars are, are looking at that give a different picture of Jesus. And it seems like um, that Christians either respond in one of two ways. They either just ignore it. Mm-hmm. Or it kind of rocks them a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not quite sure, like, you know, I've, I've like, are there other accounts or, you know, and, and sometimes some would say even that the accounts that are in the Gospels were, were, were given not just as a historical record, but, but for a particular purpose to, to like, um, to color our understanding of Jesus, whether that was real or not, you know, kind of a thing. And that these other accounts help flesh it out and, you know, that type of stuff. Um, talk to us about that. And that was a big can of worms. That was, that was like four questions in Sorry. one. So, so it's no problem. So let's go through the yeah. pieces. Yeah. Okay. Um, first, let's talk about the Gospels themselves. Uh, do they have a perspective? Do they have a point of view? Do, in fact, even between the Gospels, do they have a, a differing point of view? The answer to those questions is yes. They, okay. There's The Gospel writers are writing. They're trying to demonstrate to you and persuade you simultaneously that Jesus is this figure whom the new community of believers is is claiming that he is. Um, right. And so that's definitely the case. And Matthew has one set of concerns. Mark has a second set of concerns. Luke has his own concerns. John has his own concerns. But there also is a storyline between them all that is fundamentally the same. And that is that Jesus is at the center of the program of God. He is the son of God. He is the exalted one. He's the resurrected one. However, whatever picture you want yeah. to use to use it, they're all saying the same thing at that level. So so that's one part of it. And then what people come along and say is, well, that stuff's been played with in one way or another. Or what we're really hearing is what the early church came to see Jesus to be as opposed to who he really was and what he taught about himself. And that's that's where the problematic um, portrayal comes in because there is, I think, on the one hand, no doubt that as these writers write, they are reflecting who they have come to understand who Jesus is. Okay. I, don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But who they've come to understand Jesus is is a direct reflection of their exposure and understanding of who Jesus was in his life and ministry. Okay, and so, um, and, and so you get 
you get different concerns. I mean, Matthew's really concerned with how uh, the Jewish community has responded to Jesus. Mark is much more interested in what Jesus did in his ministry, has much less space given over to the things Jesus said. Luke has a mixture of those two things, and he's interested in explaining that the Gentile inclusion in the people of God was something that God intended from the beginning, and what looks to be a new movement's actually are rooted in very rich and old promises because mm-hmm. in the ancient world, when it comes to religion, it's not what's new that's good. It's what's been around and time-tested. And then John tells us exactly why he writes. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So so they have different concerns and they have different biases. So that's, that's the Gospels. Uh, and just because they have a um, persuasive position doesn't mean that they are fudging on history. Okay. I can I can have a point of view and still talk about what happened. And of course, what they're claiming about Jesus is so absolutely unusual. Uh, the way I like to say it is is that the dilemma of the church in presenting its message is, is actually arguing that Jesus Christ is the most unique individual human being who's ever walked the earth because he's not just a human being. Yeah. And we don't claim that for anybody else. Right. So that's like different yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and you can try and make that up yeah uh but you wouldn't now some people say well in the ancient world and this moves into a second level of your question we'll say well they're really just paralleling what's going on in the ancient world um uh caesars were were deified mm-hmm. uh and turned into gods that's true um there are passages that that show Caesars being respected. It also, you know, we have temples to the various Caesars, that kind of thing that did exist. But here's the difference. When Caesars are elevated to divine status, it's in the context, first of all, of a polytheism. That's the first thing to remember. And then the second thing to remember about that is, is that they're, they, they barely make the pantheon. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, they move from human to just barely being on the transcendent side of things. And right. there are stories told about how they're exalted and transformed into this status. So that's that's the ancient world. That's not what Christianity is claiming. Mm-hmm. Christianity is not claiming Jesus barely makes it into the transcendent world. I mean, Christianity is claiming, actually when push comes to shove, that Jesus is on the creator side of the creator-creature divide. Right. And he was there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he was involved in the creation. And so he's not barely making it in the pantheon. He's not on row 25. Okay. Right. right. Uh, he's like up on the stage. Right. And, yeah. uh, and so, so that's very different. So the que- and that comes out of the con- context of a monotheistic religion. Yeah. Judaism. How do you get there? Right. Yeah. Um, so this is not something that's, that Jewish people are likely to make up out of the blue. Yeah. It right. something triggered it. Mm-hmm. The gospels of the story of what triggered that, and how people came to understand that, and how they came to regard Jesus as this unique expression of divine presence. Okay, uh, so that deals with the with the theology and context. Now, the third part of your question had to deal with all the other stuff. Yeah, the missing gospels, right? The secret gospels, right? Secret gospels are cool. okay because most people don't know about them and i want to be in on the secret right okay so that now these works are interesting they're later okay Okay, you can't trace their genealogies back all the way to the earliest period except for maybe one 
and most of them fill in gaps in the gospel material. And the two gaps that get filled in are either the the story of Jesus' infancy okay. or far more common claims about what Jesus did after he was resurrected. Okay. Almost as if to say um, these other gospels that concentrate on the resurrection, here's what Jesus said last and therefore what's most important. Okay. And, of course, what Jesus is saying last and most important in many cases is trying to challenge what we see in the Orthodox Gospels because they're coming from groups that themselves are not Orthodox, that don't go back to the earliest generations of Christianity. Now, there is one exception to this. It's the Gospel of Thomas. Okay. Gospel of Thomas is variously dated either early or late in the second century, depending on who you're talking to. But it seems to have feet in two strands of tradition, one very much like the Gospels. Parts of it, it, and it's just a collection of 114 alleged sayings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's not a gospel in the sense that you and I know it of having, you know, here's how Jesus' ministry began. Here's what right. he did. He was crucified in Jerusalem and raised in Jerusalem. It's not it's linear. Not that. Yeah. It's not linear at all. It's just a series of teachings. But you read it, and about half that material you go, man, that sounds like the gospels. Because it, it does sound like the gospels. Right. Another 25% you go, uh uh that's sort of like the gospel. And then another 25% you read and you go, man, I have no idea where that came from. I've never heard that before. Okay. So what we think is going on here is that we have one foot in the traditions that we see um, manifested as well in the gospels, but another foot is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's a hybrid gospel. And that's okay. why it fascinates scholars so much. Right. Because most of the other stuff that we get that is extra biblical um, is uh, is not of that mixed character. Um, so, and then and when you look at this other stuff, it is um, it, it's clearly not orthodox. For example, it has tinges of what's called um, Christian Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is this belief. Sorry, it'd be a long answer, but it was a big question. That was a big okay, question. Okay, sorry. all right. <laughs> um, but Gnosticism is this belief that the spiritual world is what counts and that which is physical is corrupt from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now just think about that for a second. That's not the biblical story. The biblical story and Christianity came out of Judaism. Mm-hmm. The biblical story is, is the creation including matter was good at the beginning and it was spoiled by the fall. Mm-hmm. So my argument is you already know when you see Christian Gnosticism in this, in this anti physical world, materialistic dualism, and with the good stuff just being the spiritual, you already know you're not in something that came out of Judaism. Hmm. Because Judaism said the creation was good, and now it's flawed. And Christian Gnosticism says the creation was was corrupt from the beginning. Okay. Uh, so that's a disconnect. Right. And that immediately tells you you're not dealing with the earliest Christianity that came out of Judaism and affirmed the role of God, the creator and the creation being good and the distortion that came, et cetera. So that so and that's where a lot of the material that we have that's extra biblical comes from is from from roots or actually not roots, but actually from branches like that that have that have been planted on foreign soil. Okay. Right. Wow. That's fascinating. So tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, 
and I don't know any of these figures by name, and you mm-hmm. might even know off the top of their head, but mm-hmm. I, I know that at the time um, of Jesus, there were other sort of Messiah sightings or other people, even within Jewish circles. You, you kind of talked about um, w- w- within sort of Roman circle, you know, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. even within Jewish circles, people that were thought to be sort of divine or or ha- have miraculous powers or to sort of stand out in different ways. Uh, what makes Jesus separate? Okay, that's actually a great question. And there are there are miraculous traditions that come both out of the Gentile world and out of Judaism. There are um, two particular examples out of Judaism. I'll just highlight one of them. One of them is a figure known as Honey the Circle Drawer. Okay. okay. Now, usually when someone gets a name, there's a reason. <laughs> um, and, and so Honey was this Jewish figure who lived during a time of a drought and the tradition that surrounds him says is that he was praying to God to end the drought and the way he did it is he drew a circle around himself and he said I'm staying in this circle and I'm praying to you to end the drought and when the drought is ended I'm saying I'm staying inside this circle until the drought is ended okay okay the drought ended okay and so Honey uh, left his very confined space and home okay he stepped outside the circle right thus he's known as Honey the circle drawer um and when people study the miracles in Judaism carefully, they will talk about, in the Jewish tradition, they'll talk about three kinds of miracles. Okay. This is actually important. It's okay. a sociological designation. They'll talk about um, um, PNP, which is a petitioner of numinous power, which means that I pray to God to perform an act. Okay. Okay, so... I'm not seen as the miracle worker in that case. I'm simply the one who appeals to God, and God works the miracle. Mm-hmm. God listens to them. Okay, that's right. Exactly. Um, so um, so that's one example. Then the second category is called a mediator of numinous power. This is someone who uses some kind of an object or some type of formula to um, arouse God's or the God mm-hmm. and uh, cause him to act. Okay. okay? Uh, it's oh, it's a way of appeal. Is that Moses and his staff? Yeah, Moses okay. and the staff would be okay. an example. Okay. The case of someone taking, uh, one of the miracles of Jesus has this element in it. He takes the ground, he puts it right. in the eyes of the blind person. So there's something in between. Okay. The third category is what's called a bearer of numinous power. This is the person who doesn't use prayer and he doesn't use intermediate object. His words alone accomplish the miracle. Okay. And the, and those words are not a petition or a prayer. I'm not appealing to someone else. Right. Okay. I am the bearer of the power of the transcendent right. numinous power uh, that takes place. Well, the observation has been made that if we read the miracles in the Gospels tied to Jesus, almost none of them are petitioners of numinous power. You do get a few that are a mediator of numinous power, but the bulk and the majority of them are the bearer of numinous power category. Right. Which tells you something about the person who is performing the miracle. Right. That's, that's part of the point. I call miracles PowerPoints. They're making points about Jesus' authority and power. Okay. They're audio visuals pointing to a reality. Yeah. And so, so that's what you're seeing. And, and, and then when you contrast that with what you normally see in Judaism, what you actually see is that, in Judaism, the majority of cases that you get are either the petitioners mm-hmm. or the mediators. You don't get many 
bears of numinous power where they just speak and it happens. There's right. some type of appeal to God to make that miracle happen, and it's portrayed in such a way that it seems clear that God is the one who performed the miracle. So that, so that's a difference. That's important, yeah. and that's coming from the Jewish side. Now, on the Greek side, um, the most outstanding example that, that uh, often gets put forward is the figure of Apollonius of Tiana. And uh, what people don't tell you about that example is, is that that text is actually written a, a, a full 200 to 250 years after the time that he lived. Um, and it was done, it was, the work was authorized by an empress who was anti-Christian. Okay. And so the feeling on some people is, is that this was a purposely designed counter story to the Christian tradition, which was becoming more widespread in the Roman world at the time. This was before Constantine. And so uh, we're in the, we're in the middle part of the third century. And, uh, and so, you know, at that time, the, Ruling powers were trying to still push back and control Christianity, and this was one of the ways they did it. They authorized someone to write about Apollonius and, in effect, create this miraculous figure. So there are a lot of questions about how uh, this person uh, did uh, is portrayed in this material. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay, I want to shift gears okay. really quick. I mentioned here at the at the beginning of our conversation that we're in a series— Called Unexpected Jesus. Right. And I think that a lot of us have uh, a perception of Jesus, maybe from um, from preachers or from movies or from artwork or whatever, or just um, we just like a certain, you know, uh, type of Jesus and that we can sort of carry in our heads. And um, and maybe, you know, speaking as a historian or maybe just speaking as a Christian and a Christian leader who's been around Christian circles for a long, long time, um, where do you think that we kind of get it wrong most of the time uh, or how we perceive Jesus or, or maybe even how Jesus is portrayed e- either in our own mind or just in culture? Like where, where are we getting it wrong, do you feel like? Now, uh, are you talking about the cultural perception of Jesus in general? I, or are you talking about how Christians perceive Because it makes a difference. It does I, make a difference. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I kind of gave both of those things. Yeah. So let's just start with. Maybe let's let's start with culturally. I think okay. that's maybe a maybe an easier question. It is. Uh, it is. Easier, so. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and I think the the this is actually an interesting question because the most popular way that the culture wants to see Jesus is an option he does not leave you with. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most people want to make Jesus a religious great of one kind or another. They'll grant him maybe prophetic status or religious insight status, something like that. My, my, when I explain this, I say, if we, if we went out on the street anywhere and said we're going to build a religious hall of fame, who should go in it? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Jesus gets votes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. He, he's, get, he's in there along with you know whoever else you want to put on the list. But that's the one option he won't give you. That actually is the option that was offered at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Okay. And it was, you know, he gave a variety of prophetic categories was the response. And then he turned to them and he said, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter confessed, you're the Christ or you're the Christ of God or you're the Christ, the son of the living God, depending on which gospel you're in. Right. And. And the point that that response was making was, you're not just a prophet. You're you're the anointed one of God who's smack in the middle of what God is doing to fix the world. 
Right. Okay? Yeah. So so you're not going to get that option. In fact, Jesus makes it even more stark in another passage because when the Jews are debating whether Jesus is exercising his miraculous power or not, the one option that's not on the table, that's common on the table today in our world, is it didn't happen. Okay? That, that, right. That's not the, – the, the decision is where in the world is this power coming from? Yeah. And there are only two options. It's mm-hmm. coming from above or it's coming from below. Yeah. Okay. So C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, and mm-hmm. Lord, too complicated. Okay? okay. Three options is more complicated than two. So, um, so it's either from above or below. And then Jesus answers and says, well, if this is actually satanic power, that doesn't make any sense because Satan destroys and tears down and I'm building up. Right. And then you just do new math. Okay. Yeah. Two from one equal leaves one. Okay. So if it's not from below, it's got to be from above. So the only choice that you have is that Jesus is either misleading people about who he is and what he's about and the power that's at work in him is somehow a negative power, or he actually is a reflection of the way and will of God and he comes from above and then you have to deal with him. Right. And of course, the text is suggesting pretty strongly yeah. um, that, uh, that everything that Jesus does shows that God is attesting to who this figure is and represents the support of all that he's claiming about himself. Yeah. So that's the key thing. Um, so that's the culture. The culture tends to want to put Jesus in this. They, they, they want to what I call neuter and yet inoculate Jesus at the same time. Inoculate okay. their understanding. They, they yeah. want to neuter him by making him like everybody else. Right. And they want to inoculate themselves by saying, well, we respect Jesus. We say he's one of the religious greats of all right. time. We put him in a Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, not good enough. Yeah. So so that's that's fascinating. That's yeah. the cultural part. Now, okay. now the Christian part, the Christian part is harder. The Christian part uh, turns Jesus sometimes into what I would call this Superman. Uh, because of his, and there's a reason for going there, because he is this unique combination of humanity and divinity, uh, and in, in, inseparably and mysteriously connected to itself. So yeah. they have to say that. But having said that, the text also presents Jesus in his humanity so much so that we're supposed to imitate him. Yeah. Okay. Well, the one thing I know is, in one sense, I can't imitate deity. I just have limits, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And as good a guy as you are, you do too. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, so there's something about the way Jesus lived humanly that is something I can learn from and emulate. Right. And I think sometimes our Superman Jesus gets mm-hmm. in the way of understanding that dimension of what Jesus gives us as a figure in the Gospels. Someone who prayed to God someone who was dependent, someone who got tired and took rest. I mean, just go through the list. In fact, some of those things that I just mentioned is what are, are things that make Jesus uh, and the idea that God could be take on human flesh offensive to Muslims. Right. Because they go, no, God is so transcendent, there's no way he would take on humanity. Yeah. Christianity says, no, God cares so much about the creation and loves the creation so much that he chose to incarnate his presence in such a way as to show his commitment to us as people that he's created and wants to restore and redeem. Right. So, um, so what we tend, what tends to get in the way of our understanding of Jesus is, is that we put him 
and and again, I say there's there's an appropriate way to do this. We put him in a in a unique box, but then we forget that he's also a model for us from whom we yeah. we can learn. Yeah. So Jesus being fully God and fully man, when you're outside the Christian circles, the the, the part of that that's really hard to swallow is his divinity. Right. When you're inside Christianity, the part that's hard to swallow is is humanity. Exactly. Like, it is easier for us to think of him as God in an earth suit. Right. Than him being fully human. That's right. Um, and, so. and, and, and then that, that impacts because, um, like I said, Jesus is also designed in the Gospels to be an example for us of the way someone can be fully dependent on God. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that, and we, we, if we do it in a wrong way, it's hard for us to embrace Jesus as that example. Right. Yeah, and somehow for me, when I think of him as being um, mostly transcendent mm-hmm. and not imminent, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's easier for me to think of my Christianity as primarily a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think religion is a way to... Um, change the subject mm-hmm. sometimes and not, uh, and, but when Jesus is, is fully human, when he um, relates to me mm-hmm. in that way, when he understands me in that way, when he um, looks at me and that, you know, that, that type mm-hmm. of thing, it becomes uncomfortably personal mm-hmm. in a way um, that is a little bit different than, than maybe we think of Christianity sometimes. And if you think of a passage like Philippians two, which I think encapsulates what I'm trying to say, um, what you see is is that you know it's the passage where it says God emptied Himself and took on the form of humanity, and, and it's not that we think of empty and we think of it as subtraction, but that's actually not the passage is saying. It's a new math. It's a subtraction yeah. by addition. Okay. okay, it isn't that He left His divinity behind, but He took on humanity. He He condescended to become a part of this world and to experience some of the limitations that this world offers in in its fallenness, including, you know, experiencing death, even to that point. And what you see is God reaching out for us, um, not on the basis of our having to come where he is, but he is coming to us and starting out by touching us by where we are. Yeah. And so he goes after the lost. Right. He pursues those who've turned their back on God, that kind of thing. And it's those very characteristics that uh, make Christianity come distinct from most religions uh, because um, in Judaism and even more in Islam, the, the, of the three monotheistic religions that we could talk about, um, the, the unique thing that Christianity is saying that Judaism doesn't say and that um, Islam doesn't say to an even greater degree is that God is so transcendent, so holy, so different. And we are so distinct from him as creatures that the relationship that we have to God is um, is only of a certain kind. And and it it is very much this master slave relationship. But what Christianity is saying is, uh, and, and this is particularly true with reference to Judaism, is Yes, there is this hierarchy for sure, but what this person of rank did was to empty himself and become one of us in order to take us by the hand and lead us back to God. Right. Yeah. And and that that dimension is missing. It's certainly missing in Islam. Is in yeah. Islam God is so sovereign and so transcendent um that 
that the issue of a relational covenant God is absent. Yeah. Um, and it's all strictly submission. In Judaism, you have the covenant relationship. You mm-hmm. have a God who reaches out and cares and who engages. But the idea that he would take on human flesh is is, is the hard move for, for, right. uh, for a Jewish person. Yeah. Wow. This is a lot. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, our, one last question. Okay. I want to throw it. And it, it could be that you have already addressed this, but okay. I just sort of want to throw it out because okay. you are um, – you are – you know, a recognized um, scholar in the historical Jesus. And it, but it is one thing to sort of wrestle with these things at a historical level and to look at the source material and, and weigh things and, and argue back and forth. But just for you personally, um, what has caused you, and maybe, again, maybe you've already addressed this or maybe there's something that you haven't talked about yet. Maybe what has caused you to kind of keep faith in the Jesus of the Gospels, that he is the Son of God who died for our sins. Three days later, he rose again, that that has changed your life personally. Um, and it's not not just a, a, an interesting intellectual exercise or looking through source material. You know what I mean? It just sort yeah. of impacted I, you and, I, and the way I'll describe it is I'll use a picture. It, I'm not a scientist looking through a microscope at a, a series at bacteria and looking for microbes that I can find and studying it detached. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what the experience of Jesus does in our life because the spirit of God indwells us. And because we are made into his children as a result of being responsive, to Jesus is, is that he invades our life and he invades our life, not just by what we know, but by what we experience. Okay. And, and so, you know, I have watched across my life the hand of God at work in an array of situations, in which tells me, um, Daryl, it's not just what you read and what you and the ideas that you have. I am actually with you and in your midst, and actually, I'm inside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that in other people as well. And so, so that. That relational element, we really haven't left that. That yeah. relational element is not a theoretical articulation. It is a real thing yeah. that you that you experience on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, you, you you know, you you see God at work and and that tells me that what I'm seeing in the scripture and hearing about and the centrality of Jesus and what he what he does and what he gives and et cetera, you know, is a part of what uh, what life experience also shows me and, and reaffirms. And and the important part of that is, is that something you only experience from the inside? You okay. Know, OK, that that's not someone who th- just studies about Jesus mm-hmm. or thinks about Jesus doesn't get that. Dimension. Right. You don't get it secondhand. That's yeah. right. So uh, so it's experienced directly. But that helps to reinforce, you know, what I've studied. In fact, it helps make sense out of what I study. Yeah. And it actually helps me make sense out of what I study that I can't actually prove by my study. OK. OK. So it creates it creates a space. It creates a space for faith, but it's not a blind faith. Mm-hmm. It's a faith that has taken a step because um, because what I am able to see draws me towards God. Mm-hmm. And then stepping into it, I get the direct experience of God, and that reinforces uh, what was drawing me to begin with. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. 
Well, Dr. Bach, um, I can't thank you enough. You know, Eric and I, when we were thinking about um, this season of the podcast and we were thinking about the series that we're in, we thought it'd be great if we had a conversation around the historical Jesus and it would be great if Dr. Bach could join us. And it was kind of our, uh, it was kind of our, uh, our long past to see if you'd be willing to do this. And, uh, and you were gracious enough to come and, and talk with us. And so thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for the time. No, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, you guys do great work here at Chase Oaks. And, uh, and we're hoping you're chasing more than trees. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, Greg, that was a great conversation. That's a that's a lot. It's you know, a lot. It's there, a lot. You know? yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you were on the the firing end of that yeah. one. So that, I'm not sure how it's super hold interesting. Up. Yeah. Well, and he is. He's just such a. Um, it, one, it's just so great that he's willing to give up his time because he's a really busy guy. But two, um, just the wealth of information that he has in there. Um, as you think of, you know, because you were there in that yeah. interview, as you've been processing it, was there a is there a takeaway or anything that you you know you were left with after after being in that interview? Well, it was yeah. Um, I'd probably say the first thing off the top of my head, I thought it was very interesting. Him when I asked uh, kind of where we typically make mistakes, yeah, um, and how he sort of drew a distinction that outside the church, kind of the mistake or the or the challenge is thinking about Jesus's deity, yeah, but inside it's thinking about his humanity, and I think that's a really um, that's an important distinction, and I think he's exactly right. Mm. Um, that outside the church or outside the, the community of faith, thinking of this person as divine, that's a pretty big hurdle um, to, to, uh, to, to overcome. But inside the church, it's an equally big hurdle for us to not um, only see Jesus as otherworldly mm-hmm. and transcendent, but to, um, but, and it's weird almost that those who are um, within the church community to think of him as someone who struggled, to yeah. think of someone, to think of him as someone who is that approachable, um, or to, you know, even as we've talked about within the, I, th- I think in, in, within our uh, Unexpected Jesus series, when Jeff, our, our senior pastor, started that series and just started even talking about um, the uh, the physical aspects yeah. of who Jesus probably looked like, you know, and he didn't, he, he wasn't a six foot two, you know, Norwegian, you know, like we, like we <laughs> typically, Fabio hair yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. typically yeah. picture him and that he would have been probably five feet tall, that he would have been not very attractive, like all of that kind of stuff. And for me to even think about his humanity in that way and ask questions like, can I worship someone who's shorter than me? Yeah. You know, yeah. like in that type of thing, um, it's just really, really important for us to sort of wrestle with as Christians. And I think that's, um, I think that's, I think that was interesting. Yeah. What about you? What stood out to you? Yeah. Yeah. As I was listening, I, I think it was just a reminder that, I mean, cause there's so much that's in that interview and that that's comforting to me, um, mm-hmm. in the sense where, I, it makes me feel like whenever there's an issue that pops up or something I don't understand that I read in the Bible or even come across in culture, that there are some really smart people. Like, re- I mean, because sometimes faith gets a bad rap um, right. that you almost have to check your brain at the door or yeah. that if you really dug into it, you would expose these to be just really interesting myths that don't yeah. really hold water when it comes to historicity and so I think just having a guy like a Dr. Bach who you're like, okay, this guy, you, you know, there's still a faith component to what he has. He has to have right. faith. But his faith is grounded on something. And yeah. as someone that has struggled with doubt 
at different times in my life. That that's comforting to yeah. me. Um, whether it's these different gospels that are out there, and he could press into okay, it wasn't a bunch of powerful people that were just trying to present Jesus one way. There's actually a really good reason, yeah, why it's there. Or Honey the Circle Drawer. I mean, that's a great name, just a name drop <laughs> at any point. Honey the Circle Drawer. I, I think it just made me excited and, and felt uh, reassuring to me. Yeah. Um, that's and, great. and I think for anybody that if you're interested in kind of diving in more, I know not everyone is, but there's a few of us that are probably listening that um, do come from a place where you have like a lot of questions and those are good things. The church is a place to wrestle with those. Um, and or, so, or you're just really interested and you just want to learn more. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. right. Um, I, I think Dr. Bach is actually, a, he didn't ask us to do this, but I do think he's a really interesting one to start with. And yeah. he has a number of books that are on Amazon. I mean, Who is Jesus is is probably a pretty quintessential one that would get you into the historical Jesus and all that. So I would just invite you to check out some of that if uh, if you ever had more questions yeah. or anything. Yeah, Dr. Bach wrote it. Um, it's worth reading it for is. sure. It is. Yeah. So this concludes this week's episode of the Page 2 Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. We hope it was helpful to you. Uh, as always, we want to say thanks to uh, the, the generosity of the Center for Church Renewal, who allows us to use the recording space. And we also want to invite you, if you would like to comment, follow more, or check out different episodes, to uh, do that by either uh, subscribing on iTunes, uh, Google Play, or just going to our website at page2podcast.com. We'll see you next week. Take care.